Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me, and I hope you enjoy the holidays. We'll be keeping you occupied here on this show, and if you haven't checked it out, I encourage you to listen to my new podcast series, American Prodigy, the Freddie Adu Story. Today's interview guest is Melissa Reddy, the author of the terrific new book, Believe Us, How Jurgen Klopp Transformed Liverpool into Title Winners. We've had some great guests lately, including Caleb Porter, Brianna Pinto, and Nick Mayhew, and Ted Lasso's Jason Sudeikis and Brendan Hunt. It would be huge for this podcast growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and take just a little time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. Now, here's my interview with Melissa Reddy. Our guest now is one of the rising stars in the soccer media world. South African native Melissa Reddy has made a name for herself covering the sport in the UK. She's the senior football correspondent for The Independent. She hosts the terrific podcast Between the Lines. You've seen her on TV on CBS Sports and Sky Sports, among other places. She's also the author of the new book, Believe Us, How Jurgen Klopp Transformed Liverpool into Title Winners. I've just read the book. It's fantastic. Congratulations, Melissa. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for those kind words. Yeah, the book uh, nearly killed me. That might be a little <laughs> bit of an exaggeration, but only a little bit. I don't know why you people didn't tell me how difficult it is to pull a book together, especially if you've only got one month to do it in with coronavirus. Oh, it, it's incredible hearing you tell me how how you did this book because like my first book, which came out like in 09, I, I reported for almost two years. And then I just, I wrote it in three months and I thought three months was a crazy short amount of time. You've done it even faster and you've done it really well. And like, there's so many reasons I like it in part be because you have this amazing access that you've gotten over the years to Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool and players and people involved with the club. But as everyone knows, it's one thing to get access. It's another thing to use it well. And you mm -hmm. have used it well. And you've unearthed things that I learned new stuff about Liverpool from reading your book. And I follow Liverpool very closely. I've written about Klopp. Um, and I, I come away from this wondering, how were you able to, to build relationships and trust with the people at Liverpool, because we have a lot of American listeners here. It's harder to get access to teams in the Premier League than it is to, as a media person, to cover like the NBA or, or something yeah. here in the United States. Like, how did you do this? It's extremely difficult because the Premier League is, there's so much demand for it in a media sense. But also, it's very attuned to its capabilities in terms of broadcasting rights and making money off their own club media channels and stuff. So access has become harder to secure because of, of these factors. But I think that the essence is to ensure that your relationships are always authentic and that people know that you're not trying to gain an in 
because you're looking for scandal or because you want to be first with the news or if you show that you are genuine in wanting to understand things at a deeper level, I think that's what has helped me because a lot of my work and my passion in this job is to put a human face on everything. So, you know, with managers, a lot of them have dealt with losing their parents while being on the job. And yet the only thing they're ever judged by is results, you know, even through going through this period of having just lost their mom or dad and they're back on the touchline the next week and they're going through all these personal traumas and they're getting abuse hurled at them. So showing that other side to things has made clubs, and not just Liverpool, other clubs, other managers, other players, want to talk to me because I'm not after, you know, who they're inviting to hotel rooms or or anything like that. I, I just want to give a greater understanding of the sport because it is so well-loved around the globe but I think there's so much to it that we don't understand or don't look at or tend to ignore. I mean you've followed Jurgen Klopp for a few years now what are some of the things that make him so special things that that seem to resonate universally with with players from a lot of different countries? I think Initially, it's that Jurgen Klopp is just himself. He's authentic. When he says something, it's because he means it and he believes it, which then makes you believe it. Because you can tell that he is putting a part of himself into what he's doing. And I think having gone to Mainz, having gone to Borussia Dortmund, and obviously spending a lot of time covering from his first day to Liverpool till today being in the press conference is how much he cares about the clubs he works at and when I say care I don't just mean what do you do on the weekend to secure a win it's how are we improving what we have in terms of personnel so players and staff But also, how are we looking forward? What's our long-term vision? And all three clubs are united in saying that he didn't just come in and give the team an identity. He left long-lasting foundations. And interestingly, both Mainz and Borussia Dortmund will still refer to him today as their gaffer, as their manager. Uh, they speak so glowingly about him. And both clubs have sort of gone through kind of an what feels like a never-ending phase of trying to replace him. And they will tell you he is irreplaceable. And it will be interesting to see how Liverpool plan for life post him because the other two will testify that it is extremely difficult. Dortmund having just changed managers once again uh, recently here. Um, You mentioned a little bit like that this book came together fairly quickly. What is the story of, of how the book happened? I had always had it in my head because I've done a lot of long form around Liverpool and especially their key moments. So how the sale of Felipe Coutinho eventually came about from 
the start of it from before Barcelona's bid had originally come in while the club uh, were on tour in Hong Kong to the pursuit of Virgil van Dijk and the tapping up scandal, uh, the loss in Kiev and how they were going to recover from that, the near title tilt with Manchester City, why instead of thinking to themselves, we've got 97 points and we've not won the league, will we ever win the league? They thought, hmm, we managed to push City so close, they're going to be scared of us now. We can take the next step. You know, covering um, their Champions League seasons extensively. And I thought, I've got all this information. It should actually go into a book. But I would have no idea how to start that process. And so it was just something that was in the back of my head, but without the the capacity to action it and I'd actually been saying to my friend the day before I got an email from HarperCollins saying why am I not writing a book about Liverpool going to win their first title in 30 years this is so bonkers because I've got like all this built-up information and I've got the access and they're like oh yeah it's something you should definitely look at doing and I was like oh it's too late now anyway and then the next day I got an email from Harper Collins asking me if I would be interested and what the book would look like. And because it had already been in my head, I gave them the chapter structure. I gave them the title of the book. I basically delivered them a book in response in an email. And then they had to then, you know, go through the process of getting it over the line and getting a contract drafted. And until I actually got a contract, I couldn't say to anyone, hey, I might be doing a book, so can we get a head start on the process? Because you actually never know. So I had, from the time of, of having the contract in front of me, I think it was just shy of a month to pull the book together. But what made it difficult wasn't just that time frame. It was the fact that obviously now with coronavirus, you're not getting any face-to-face time with players or staff. But also, it, Project Restart was in, in full swing and there were games pretty much every two days. So trying to speak to anyone over Zoom in that time frame was really difficult. And then players were off for a two-week break and they didn't want to speak to anyone then they came back and they were immediately into preseason. so trying to secure the interviews while also writing the book with knowing that you need that content to really make it sing was a very very delicate process and actually I took myself away to Ireland to get most of it done uh, which helped immensely because change of scenery change of routine, just made me focus on the book and offered me a sort of clarity to to shape things in my mind while waiting for their content. And the the day I got Jurgen Klopp, he was in Austria uh, during Liverpool's preseason. That was the day, I think for the first time I was able to breathe because I was like, okay, there's the interview now that ties everything together. And now... It makes sense. And then I went to all the previous chapters and added in his perspective on all of it. So, yeah, it was such a 
a taxing process, but the day I filed the final word and sent it off, and the day the box arrived where I saw it for the first time and held it in my in my hands for the first time, I don't think anything can compare to those moments of, of relief and pride. It's a cool feeling. I always say that the writing process, I don't always like thoroughly enjoy the process because it can be really hard for me at least. But I love being done <laughs> with yes. writing. Yes. And I love that feeling. It's heightened even more with books. And, and you're right, even as we've gotten into this very digital world that we live in, there is something still very cool about holding a print book yes. with hard covers in your hand that you've written, you know? Um, and so I, I, I definitely understand what you're saying there. Um, so if I was going to ask what your biggest challenge was writing the book, was it simply just time or something else? It was definitely time. And also I wanted to tell the story not from a purely football perspective. So I had noticed books that talk about a specific um, achievement, so in this case a title win, that had done so previously, always spoke about it in terms of, and then they played so-and-so on this weekend, and then they went and played there, and it was framed around the games itself and the decisions in the games and substitutions, all those kind of things. And I didn't want it to be a book about matches because Liverpool's story is not that. It's a proper transformation psychologically in terms of structures, in terms of responsibility around the club. And I wanted to show people not just the process, but the people involved and give them like a wide lens on these people. So there's a lot in the book about Mike Gordon, for example, that people ordinarily wouldn't know, or, and Michael Edwards and Ian Graham and the analytics team that hasn't been covered in depth because I needed the audience to know that firstly, while Klopp is the, the head of this transformation, he's not the sole figure in it, but also, winning in football is not about 90 minutes. Honestly, the preparation and the detail involved in getting the right sort of staff, the right culture in, is so intensive and never-ending that that's the story I wanted to tell. So knowing that as well put a lot of pressure on me because when you minusing speaking about matches that's a lot of what most books are about so i was giving myself a mountain to climb in the shortest amount of time yeah no and, and you did it i mean the i i say this as a compliment like this book doesn't read like you wrote it as quickly as you did um yeah and <laughs> and so that's that's very good um I, I'm curious, you cover other teams besides Liverpool there and, and follow other teams in the UK, but I associate you most with Liverpool. How did your association with Liverpool happen in the first place? I think that's because when I came to the UK initially, the first club I was made to cover was Liverpool. 
And so that kind of sticks. No mm. matter how much you try and shake it, it will automatically just happen. And that's okay. I, I don't mind that at all, that people see me. If I say something about Liverpool, people know that it's authoritative, that it's true. That's a good thing to have. Um, it also then actually allows you to show clubs, look at how much I've gotten from them because... You know, if I was trying to schnei them over or something, I wouldn't get any of this access. So other clubs then look at what you've done and they warm to you and, and they give you a lot. And that's what happened with um, Tottenham and Maurizio Pochettino, for example, Leipzig and, and Julian Nagelsmann. And I, I don't think I will ever get to a point where people don't see Liverpool and see me. And like I said, that's cool. As long as they know that when I'm talking about other things, like I'm very big on player welfare at the moment because I speak to a lot of physios. That's not coming from a Liverpool perspective at all. That's coming from a, I'm looking at the injuries. I'm speaking to professionals. I'm listening to the dangers. And I'm worried that we care so much about in entertainment that we completely forsake welfare. So when, when I cover these other huge talking points, I need people to then not associate me with Liverpool. I have always felt a bit of a kinship with you because we both sort of started as outsiders in the European soccer football world. Uh, you happen to actually live in it as opposed to me. Uh, but that said, I'm also a white man. You're you're a woman of color from South Africa. Would it be possible to to sort of share your story personally? Where are you from in South Africa? How did you start covering the sport there? Yeah, so I the the initial moments I have to say when I first came to the UK were very difficult. I heard a lot of snide comments about me because I am so different. They had never seen a young foreign female of color wanting to come and be part of the written press. And on a national scale, at the top flight, you know, they want you, oh, you're new here, go and start at the very bottom and prove yourself to us kind of thing. Um, so you have to really work exceptionally hard and it's a continuous process to get buy-in from people and to make them take you seriously. But I am a product of apartheid South Africa. I come from quite a political family. So I'm lucky in that when I was growing up, I knew that I should never let the limitations other people place on me dictate how I view myself or how I view my future. And I had always been interested in sport. I come from quite a sporty family as well. But I never saw anyone that looked like me on TV or, you know, writing in newspapers or writing books. I'd never read any, anything from somebody who was female in the sporting sphere. So it never seemed possible. And actually when, even all the way through university, it never seemed possible. And so I thought I was going to 
follow a career in political journalism and ultimately I wanted to become the Minister of Foreign Affairs, South Africa's Minister of Foreign Affairs. I'm so happy I didn't do that. I would have been so miserable <laughs> because, oh my goodness, like there's so much emotion and strain and stress involved in football, but at least football isn't <laughs> enjoyable. Like politics, no. Um, and then there was a advertisement for sports journalists but you had to go through this rigorous process it was for sky's south african office you had to do a long quiz if i remember correctly it was like 60 questions in this quiz you had to do a rewrite you had to do an original story on a on a subject they gave you and you had to do a debate as well as do a general interview and I went to Cape Town for it, which was, I had to move cities. So I went to this interview and they said, oh, we'll let you know in about two or three weeks because it's a long process, like wading through all these applications. And an hour after I left, the managing editor called me and he said, I've never seen results like this. The job is yours if you want it, but it came with a pay cut and stuff. And it meant I needed to move, but I thought this is my shot. If I don't take it, I will forever regret it. It's not about the money. It doesn't matter that I have to move cities from my family and stuff. This is what I want. And that's how it started. And I've never looked back and it's just been an upward trajectory. But I have to say with persistent difficulties because I think people see successes they don't see the knockbacks which was honestly it felt like daily you'd, you'd speak to a paper and they'd say to you no we don't need anything thank you or you'd get an interview and you tried to give it to people and they would knock it back all the time and actually Sports Illustrated uh had taken a Daniel Sturridge interview from me quite early on from when I was in the UK. And, and I think a Brendan Rogers one as well. So that was quite helpful. And the independent was the first publication in the UK to use my work. And now I'm their senior mm -hmm. football correspondent. So that's quite a nice arc, but people just would not give you an inch. You, I had to, fight and fight and fight and deal with rejection and just keep coming back and even now whenever I get an opportunity I will get people telling me that I only have the opportunity because of tokenism because I'm female and of color and if they only knew what a noose it was to be female and of color to try and get into this industry, they would realize that there is no such thing as tokenism when it comes to how much I've had to put in and work to get to where I am. This episode is brought to you by a streaming service I use that I love. It's called Fanatis with a Z, and you can watch all the action in Spain's La Liga and other international leagues and tournaments live and on demand from your favorite device, whether it's a mobile phone, tablet, 
or directly on your TV with the Fanatis app. You can also watch the top leagues from France, Brazil, and Argentina, as well as the Copa Libertadores. Fanatis features channels you know, like BN Sports in English and Spanish, Gold TV, and many more. And it costs as little as $7.99 a month. If you'd like to try Fanatis for yourself, you can get a free week-long trial by clicking on the link in the episode description or by going to fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. One more time, that's fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. Thank you very much to Fanatis for sponsoring this episode. Fanatis, the world's largest stadium. I mean, one thing I do love about writing is, is that in journalism is you put on the page, everyone can see that it's good. That said, opportunities don't always come for people who mm-hmm. are talented. And and I, I'm very aware of that um, as well. What What led to you moving to the UK in the first place? I had known for a while that I'd reached my ceiling in South Africa. So I was working for Africa's biggest sport publication in kickoff. I was the deputy editor there and my editor had been in the job for, I think it was like 25 years. He wasn't going anywhere. And actually I didn't want his job because it was miserable. Um, I'd done super sport, which is basically South Africa's sky sports, the behemoth. And I'd done their major radio stations. There was nothing challenging me. And I'm a person that needs to be challenged. I, I want to be better. I want to get better. And I can't do that if I'm comfortable. And I was severely comfortable. So I had done my thesis on Dutch football. So in my head, there was the option to move to the Netherlands. But then no one's interested really in that league. So going there to find work, I was imagining that it would be really, really tough. My family had lived in Germany for a period and the Bundesliga is a very good league to cover. So that was the other thing in my head, go and do the Bundesliga. So I'd come over to Europe for a working holiday to interview some of the African players um, playing around the continent. And I'd been in Liverpool for 20 minutes, walking around, waiting for my hotel room to get ready. And I was like, you know what? This is the hardest country to come to, but this is the one. This is if if you want to work in football, you need to be working in the Premier League. Like if you're going to move to Europe and stuff, if you're going to go for it, might as well go the biggest you can. And I knew that Failure and repetitive failure was going to be a thing because it's such a closed industry here. And I knew that work permit wise and admin wise, it was going to be nightmarish because I mean, you have a country where Brexit means Brexit. So it's trust me, it's very hard to get in here and stay in here. Um, So I was aware of all the challenges, but I was prepared to meet them. And I was prepared to sacrifice everything as well, because I think it's probably underrated how much you have to give up when you're 
following a career, especially if you have to leave home for it. So family time is completely gone. You also end up not really spending a lot of time with friends or having a relationship because you've now moved to a new country to follow this career path. So you're, and you're trying to break through. So you're investing everything in that. And yeah, it, it's, it's mad to think of everything that's happened since. And I actually am not someone I don't dwell and I never, it's, it's a very bad thing because, and my friends and my family have to constantly force me to be like, Mel, you've just written a book. Mel, you've got your own podcast. Cause I don't actually think about it. The moments I remember and that stay with me is when I've been told no, or when I've been rejected for a job. But I think I hold on to those things because it makes sure I'm never comfortable. It reminds me of how much I've had to give to be where I am. And I, I, I am so grateful and so privileged to be in this job that I never want to take it for granted. And so holding on to those things ensure that it doesn't happen. I do want to ask about your podcast, Between the Lines. You've done some high-quality stuff, uh, including episodes on, on head trauma in soccer, social media abuse in the sport, interviewing people like Alex Scott, to one-on-one interviews with Gary Lineker, uh, Mauricio Pochettino, Adam Lalana, Daniel Sturridge. It seems like you're really seeking to associate yourself with quality because like there can be there are a lot of podcasts out there that just kind of want to talk about the news of the week but like what are you wanting to you know seeking to do with the podcast quality is one way of putting it but for me it's all about education i see my job as enlightening people or I should be telling them stuff they don't know or helping them see things in a way they haven't before or giving them more in-depth insights on a topic that maybe isn't covered as well as it should be because when it comes to football, you know, if it's transfers, it sells. If it's scandal, it sells. If you're having a go, if you're highly critical of someone, it sells. And none of those things are me. I know I have to report on transfers sometimes, but it's my least favorite part of the job, actually. And I, like I said at the, at the start of this, football is such a wonderful thing, such a unifying sport. And I really wanted to show people that, hang on, I know we all like get super invested in those 90 minutes, but here's everything else that's going around in this amazing thing. And here's how we can change it for the better. And with the podcast, I was approached to do the show and I knew that it was, usually when people approach me, it's they want the following that I have. And they also want star-studded, big names, big brand, panache, glitz. And I was like, well, I, that's not me, actually. I want to talk about things that are significant, that matter. I want to help make whatever small change I can make. So if I'm doing a podcast show, it's going 
to not be on transfers. It's going to not be on things that immediately get a big audience. And I'm not interested in the numbers. I'm interested in the subjects. And like even the big interviews with Daniel Sturridge, it was all about the perception of him, you know, talking through injuries, talking through because he's into music and fashion, people saying that he wasn't into football itself, you know, all misconceptions and and those sort of things. So even the interviews are not, okay, you started playing football when you were this age and you scored this goal then. It's it's really trying to give a different slant on, on everything in the game. And the most rewarding thing for me is when I look at the numbers, I'm like, there is actually an audience for this. People do actually care. Like I didn't go chasing the numbers. And yet because I'm giving people something that I I think they can tell that I've put a lot of passion into it and effort and I'm doing it coming from the right space. So they've like bought into it. It's interesting, like what I've sort of found personally, like, you know, the media landscape, as you know, is changing all the time. And, and so there there seems to be more incentive than ever for clicks and and quantity. And so I figured that my challenge is to try and associate myself with quality and as much as possible moving forward and, and find ways to make that sustainable. Um, it sounds like that's what you're trying to do as well. And it's possible to to do that. And that because you're getting numbers for your podcast, maybe a way to differentiate yourself these days is with really high quality. Yeah, it, it's a very tough balance to strike because you are aware that you have to like I know my sports editor will be getting from the main editor feedback on traffic and he'll be getting asked what can we do to raise numbers and stuff here. I am very lucky that I've got a line manager and an editor who doesn't say to me I need clicks on this or we need something on that transfer. He knows I will only write something if I'm sure about it, if I'm passionate about it, and if I've spoken to a lot of people. So even if I'm writing an opinion-based article, I will still speak to as many experts in that field as possible to shape my opinion, because there are a lot of people in our industry, unfortunately, who have a platform and have a voice and don't put any effort into being educated on what they're speaking about. So I try as much as possible to get that in. And I do think it is a way to differentiate yourself. And I do think people are so smart. Listeners and readers are so smart. They can tell people who are just putting out content because they they want you to click on it because they're having to fill a quota rather than people who are doing it because they genuinely want to inform. On the television side, I've really enjoyed your insights and your willingness to to take on, at times, the opinions of so-called traditional football people. And sometimes, as I found, 
doing that, that can be met with resistance when you didn't play or coach the sport at a professional level. What have you found in your experience? Very much the same. I will get told if I have a counterpoint to anyone that's played before or has been in the industry a lot longer than I have been, that one, I haven't actually kicked a ball professionally, and two, I haven't been around long enough to to sort of go against that person. Like, how dare I? And I, I always say, if you don't, if you want me here to be vanilla and to agree with everyone, that's not what I'm going to do. I have spent a lot of time speaking to all sorts of people in football, from sporting directors, chief executive, physio, nutritionist, to make sure that I have a good understanding, like a 3D understanding of the game. And I make it my mission to speak to players, not from a, from a performance point of view, but from a psychological point of view to understand what they're going through during rough periods, during injury periods. And so I know I've done enough to hold an opinion and to fight for my opinion because it's informed. And so I don't mind. And I also don't mind if that means I never get invited on on a show again. That's fine. I would rather be true to myself and to my passion for this profession than, you know, appeasing people so I can get invited back. We're winding down here with Melissa Reddy. Really appreciate you taking this much time. Uh, I'm going to skip around here because you said something earlier about your family's background in South Africa was political. They were, they were politically involved. And, and I'm just curious to know what that did involve. So my family, the large proportion of them were freedom fighters under apartheid. So it started off initially by community sort of projects like helping hands where they would make sure that the community was getting enough food, enough supplies, uh, access to education, books, and stuff like that. And then from being involved in community projects, I think the scale of, of disenfranchisement, of how much they were just being, uh, not only in a political sense, but in an everyday life sense, made inferior started to really strike my family and so they then it progressed to joining unions it progressed to becoming heavily involved in the ANC uh, I had family members who were locked up for their part in the struggle just because they were you know trying to pass through ANC pamphlets and stuff which were banned at the time and my one aunt was in jail while she was pregnant with my cousin. Um, so I, I'm fiercely proud, one, of where I come from, but I'm also fiercely proud of the family I come from because they stood up for what's right when it was very difficult to do so at their own detriment because they did have their freedoms 
whatever freedom that they did have at that time because (laughs) you weren't very free in South Africa under apartheid. But they had all that taken away from them. Uh, They had to leave the country, live in exile, um, have no life whatsoever. So eventually we could have what we have now and that I could have the kind of opportunities I have now. And I think anyone who's ever met me or like encountered me in any way, even off Twitter or Instagram and stuff, will know that I might be a whole continent away from home, but I carry South Africa and my experiences from there into everything I do. It's interesting, maybe because there was a World Cup in South Africa in 2010, a lot of global media spent time there. I I also happened to live in South Africa in Johannesburg for almost a year in 2008, 2009, when my wife was working there. Wrote my first book. The actual writing was there. Uh, I have a lot of affection for South Africa. Um, how do you feel about sort of... Yeah, we could be here for forever talking about the country itself, but like the where soccer is in South Africa and what sort of legacy there has been of the World Cup there? Yeah, I did a, a long piece on the 10-year anniversary earlier this year, speaking to key figures in the game there about what's happened and what the actual legacy was. And in terms of the immediate upturn in tourism and and having the infrastructure of very good stadiums and stuff, that was a positive. But actually, football-wise, we haven't seen much improvement. And part of that is because the, the league and the big clubs now are so profitable that they're able to pay players really well. So you get fewer... South African exports. So back in the day, you had Penny McCarthy, Mark Fish, Lucas Redeva. You had all these South African players playing abroad, learning different styles and um, tactical shapes and all these things, bringing it back home. And you had a really strong national team that was winning the African Nations Cup, that was regularly qualifying and, and doing well by their standards in the World Cup. That has receded some way. You get very few exports now. And also you have players who think to themselves, I'm playing for a big club in South Africa. Why do I want to go play in the Belgian League, for example? But the Belgian League is a a gateway for you to get to La Liga or the Premier League. So there's a lot of turning their noses down in that respect. And so we have a weaker national team now. Also, obviously, keeping the stadiums full is is a nightmare. Um, there's so much money being wasted in that regard. There are a few success stories, but very few. Um, and unfortunately, there is a lot. And I think this happens in, in most places when it comes to football because of the the money involved in the game, a lot of self-interest and a lot of holding on to power, a lot of mismanagement of funds. And I think those are are South Africa's 
big issues, but there is a piece that I'd put out in June if anyone's interested in the version of events from people who were involved in the whole process, in the bidding of it, players who played in the World Cup, who are now in management or working as analysts in South African football to give their panorama of of the 10 years since. Um, it's a very, very long, but it's very informative. Nice. Uh, I just want to end up here by asking you, what do you want to be doing in five years? I like asking people that question. I like getting asked that question because it always reminds me that I don't even know what I'm doing tomorrow. <laughs> um, no, this, you know what? The job in the last two years specifically has been so relentless that there is hardly any time to take a breath and think forward. Like now I'm watching games every day on TV because I'm trying to follow what's happening with all the clubs and in a wider sense with the big European clubs as well. And it's just so taxing, but I know, I don't know exactly. What I do know is I want to continue on this path and let nothing sway me from trying to inform and educate in a deeper sense around football. That is definitely what I want to be doing. I want to spend more time one-on-one -on -one with players and managers and discussing and breaking down processes so that I can be a different sort of voice. And I still want to be a pathway. I want, I want young girls or anybody of color or anybody that comes from a country that is considered third world or whatever to look at me and see what's possible. Real quick here, I know a lot of people already follow you on social media. Where can they find you on social media and, and tell them how they can buy your book? So it's pretty easy to find me on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram if you search Melissa Reddy. And Believe Us is available from Amazon in the US, Barnes and Nobles, and also all major retailers of books and also independent bookstores. There's, I know, a very big Liverpool market in the US, and so the book will be easily available. And I hope if you do get it, you enjoy it thoroughly. I know I did. Melissa Reddy is the senior football correspondent for The Independent. She hosts the podcast Between the Lines, and she's the author of the new book, Believe Us, How Jurgen Klopp Transformed Liverpool into Title Winners. Melissa, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Melissa Reddy as well as producer Chris Whittingham. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.